Peter chapter five, page 830, if you're one of, in one of our Bibles. So, you know, I don't know what your, your summer's been like. I, I don't know what your, your summer schedule is, your summer agenda, but uh, it's been an awesome summer for our family. And part of the reason it's been so awesome was we got a few weeks into June and it's like the summer was just going so fast, going so crazy. We just kind of made the decision, let's just slow it down. And let's just kind of take it easy. And we wanted to have just, uh, you know, a, a few just normal weeks where we didn't plan things at night and we didn't go anywhere and we just kind of used our summer evenings the way that summer evenings are supposed to be used where we could go on bike rides around the neighborhood and catch fireflies and eat ice cream and play in the tree house and be with our neighbors and just do all the things that we love in the summer. And so it's been a great few weeks, but one of the highlights of the summer for, for me is every year, uh, typically in June or July, I'll take each of my boys away for just a little father-son baseball trip. It's like a 24-hour trip. We'll go somewhere within driving distance uh, the baseball game is not the point. We don't care which game we're going to, who we're going to see. It's just that we get to hang out together, that we get to eat lots of terrible junk food, that we get to swim in the hotel swimming pool and kind of do all those things. So uh, a few weeks ago, I'm on the trip with my son, Jack, who's six years old, and we're going up to Cincinnati to catch a, a ball game. And we stop like every nine minutes to buy candy and a drink, and then nine minutes later to go to the bathroom. And then that's kind of the routine. A five-hour trip was like 21 hours up to Cincinnati. That's hyperbole, so don't check me on that later, but it was a long trip, and we get up there, and we, we swim in the, the hotel swimming pool, which is like the best part anyways, you know, we're swimming in the hotel pool, and then we get to this, this game that um, we, as soon as we get to the, um, the ticket booth, there's a sign that says, it's an all-you-can-eat uh, deal for $20, and Jack, who is six years old and weighs 47 pounds, he's like, I need that. And I'm like, sure you need it, let's do it, it's father-son trip, and so we get this, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're just digesting a sinful amount of sugar, you know, on our way to diabetes, and we're just eating our way through the game, and just kind of having one of those moments, and, and, and we get there to the end of the game, and right as the game's ending, we, we find out something that we didn't know when we get there, and that is that they're ending the game with fireworks, and he's like, this is awesome. Like, and if, you, if you know my son Jack, like, you know this about him, he is a man of great passion. It is like the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows, and there is no middle gear. I mean, he is like, he is all in. And so he finds out there's fireworks. He's like, there's fireworks. Are we going to get to shoot them? No, you won't get to shoot them. You're going to get to watch them. Okay, cool. You know, and he, he's just excited about the fireworks. And so the, the fireworks start going off. And one of the things that I love about Jack, and one of the things that's also frustrating about Jack is he's so excited about what's happening is he sometimes struggles to, to actually enjoy what's happening. And so we're there in the middle of the fireworks, and he's like, this is awesome, this is awesome. And he looks at me about 30 seconds in and goes, when's it going to be over? I said, oh, just relax. Go on for another minute or so. Is that the last firework? Is this the last firework? Is that the last? I'm like, dude, you're killing me. Just enjoy the fireworks. But he was so worried that it was going to be over, he kept asking me. And so I looked at him. I said, buddy, trust me, when it comes to the end, you're going to know it. He says, how, how am I going to know when we're at the end? And I say, buddy, because in fireworks shows, they always save the best for what? For last. They always save the best for last. It's going to get louder. It's going to get brighter. It's going to get more American. There's going to be more explosions. Like, like uh, you know, uh, it's, you're going to know. And a few minutes go by, and sure enough, it gets louder, and it gets brighter. And he looks at me, and he says, he says this is the end, isn't it? I said, yeah, this is the end. Because there, there's something in us that knows intuitively that that which is best is supposed to come last. So it happens when you go see a great concert, right? I was at a concert last night for one of my favorite bands, and they always save the best song for what? 
for last. Or if you go see a great comedian, at least the goal of a great comedian is for the best joke to be the last joke. And you can almost see it in their eyes. They're like, they're throwing those jokes out there. And the moment they get the biggest laugh, they're like, all right, we're out of here. Like, they're gone because they want the best to come, what? Last. They want it to be last. So it happens in great movies and in great books. It's what you and I do on Christmas morning when we're giving our gifts to the people that we love, right? There's a reason we start with the stocking and we end with the Xbox. Like, if you get that out of order, Here's an Xbox. They're like, this is where we're beginning. What am I getting at the end, right? Like, you want to save the best for what? For last, for last. And over the last 16 weeks or so, we've been just going inch by inch through this, this letter that was written by a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, and it's, it's chock full of beauty, all these beautiful pictures of Christ. We've talked about what it looks like to suffer well and what it looks like to live well and what it looks like to function as a priesthood of all believers and what it looks like to be a family living on mission together and what it looks like to walk in humble, mutual submission to one another and to do all these things in the presence of Jesus. But I'm convinced that Peter follows the rules of a great fireworks show and he ends by saving the best for last. And I think there's a, there's a reason he gets to the end of the letter and it's not just a casual wrap-up. He doesn't write all these great things about Jesus and then just XOXO, XO, Peter. <laughs> like, he, he, he ends, he ends with two sentences that I believe are chock full of such brilliant truth. I don't mean this in a hyperbolic sort of way. I believe you could spend the rest of your life meditating on the last two sentences of kind of the letter portion of his writings to these people and, and you'd have a feast from now until the time that you see Jesus. Because Peter wasn't just coming to the end of a letter. Uh, Peter was coming to the end of his life. You know, he was getting ready to be martyred by the Roman Empire. And he knew that he didn't have much longer left to live. He knew that he probably wouldn't see these churches again, these people that he knew and that he loved. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone when they were coming to the end of their life and they knew it. But there's this deep sense in them that when time is short, you make your words count. And in those moments, you don't talk about the weather and you don't talk about sports, but you talk about the things that matter. I remember years ago when my grandmother was getting ready to pass away, just this incredible woman. I had a wonderful relationship with her. I remember going to visit her at the hospital and she knew that, that her finish line was close. And I knew that her finish line was close. We didn't know exactly when this was gonna happen, but I had a lot of great moments with my grandmother, but one of the moments I'll never forget is being in that room with her and having that last conversation. And she just knew, she knew that the end was near, and in some ways, she saved the best for last, and it's what Peter does. He looks out at these people that he loves, and this is what he says. Look at verse 10 with me of 1 Peter chapter five. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. He says, and may the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. After you've suffered for a little while, may this God of grace, will he himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever and ever. Amen. I'm gonna read that one more time. He says, may the God of all grace, who called you into eternal glory in Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore you. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To that God of grace be the power 
forever and ever and ever and ever, amen, and it's the mic drop for Peter. Like, that's, that's the end. And it's in this, this moment where he kind of leaves us just with five, like, breathtaking reminders of who Jesus is. He says, I just want you to see this. He says, I want you to understand this. Peter says, as I'm coming to my finish line and as all of us are preparing for our finish line, whether we realize it or not, he says, I want you to be reminded of what matters most. And I love where he starts. Look back at the beginning of verse 10. He says, I want you to remember the character of God. He is the God of all, what's that word? Grace. He says, I want you to remember who we're dealing with. I want you to remember who it is that you're gonna see face to face one day. He's the God of of all grace. He's the God of unequaled kindness. He's the God of unequaled favor. He's the God of unequaled merit. There's so many things that Peter could have said about God here. And so many of them would have been true. He could have said, he's the God of all truth. He's the God of all justice. He's the God of all power. He's the God of all mercy. He's the God of all hope. And all of those things would have been true. But Peter says, I want to leave you with the most personal to my life image of God that I have, and that's his grace. Last Saturday, I was at a birthday party. One of my closest friends, his oldest son, was turning seven. So we're there at this birthday party. We're all there in their house, and we're meeting all of the parents and all the friends that are there. And I'm on the back porch, and I meet one of their neighbors. And uh, I get to know their neighbor for the first time. I'm like, oh, how do you know Lee and Amy? Like, what's your connection? And she begins to tell me how they're connected. And then she just makes this passing statement that really struck me. She said, they're two of the kindest, most generous people I've ever known. I'm like, what an amazing description of people that I've known for like 20 years and just love. I'm like, that is a great description. And then I started thinking about all of our friends in the living room. Like, if we went in and said, hey, you've got 30 seconds. Describe Lee and Amy in one word. It would have been so much fun to just hear the different words because a good friendship or a good friend is like a diamond and there's different sides that we all see from our own perspective, right? And there's so much that Peter could have said about Jesus here. He says, but here's my parting words to you. Here's what I want you to hear is that one day you will close your eyes in this life and you will open your eyes in the next and you will look into a God who is marked by grace. That he is unequaled. He is unparalleled in his kindness. God is not a monster. (laughs) He's not an angry old guy in the sky looking to destroy you. He's the God of all goodness. He's the God of all kindness. And, And Peter says, take it from me. He says, I have screwed this thing up so many times. And over and over and over, he says, what I was met with was the grace of Jesus. Peter looks, he says, as we're coming to the end, he says, I want you to to be reminded, I want you to remember the character of the God that we deal with. He's a God of grace. He says, but I don't want you to just remember his character. He says, I want you to remember the calling that he's put upon your life. Look back at verse 10. He says, may the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. He says, this is your calling. He says, this God of kindness, this God of grace, He is wooing you. He is pulling you into a calling that is marked by eternal glory. Now, I want you to hang with me here for a second because these two words, eternal and glory, they're not good news if they're by themselves, but but together they're unbelievable. Eternity without the promise of glory is not much of a promise. I think about one of my friends, Anne, who's a part of this church. And unless God does something miraculous in her life over the next few weeks, she's going to come to the end of her journey on this side of eternity. She's been battling disease for 25 years. She's been in a wheelchair for almost that entire time. 
And I, I, I was sitting with her in her apartment. I was just listening to her story. We were talking. We were praying together. And she said, Dave, unless Jesus totally heals me, I don't want to keep hanging on. She said, because this version of existence feels like hell. She says, but what I'm getting is not just eternity, eternity but eternal glory. She says, I'm going to get my legs back. <laughs> I'm going to get to run again and walk again and be in the presence of God again. And I go, this is the promise. And I'm sitting there with this sister of ours that's in this moment of suffering, and she's, she's holding on to this reality. She understands that it gets better than this. It gets better than this, than this life that we're in. Can you just shake your heads if you understand that? That it gets, it gets better than this. And I love this. Peter says, it's not just that God has this gracious character. It's that he's given you this unbelievable calling. He's calling you into this place of never-ending glory. Eternal glory. He says it's better than this. So for those of you that are struggling and suffering and hurting, he says it's better than this. He says, but for those of you that are literally at the top of your game, you need to hear this as well. It gets better than this. Because sometimes the greatest challenge in our life is not our moments of suffering, but our moments of success. Because we begin to believe that, man, this is as good as it gets. And Peter says, no, I want you to be reminded that the God of grace, he's called you to more than this, and the more than this is a place of eternal glory. You know, I told you earlier about the trip that I took with my, my son, Jack. Last week, I got to take my eight-year-old son, Micah, on his trip, and we went down to Birmingham uh, to, to catch just a, a minor league baseball game. He wanted to see where Space Jam was made, those of you that remember that movie. And so we went down to, uh, to Birmingham to, to, to watch a game, and and, uh, you know, great experience. And we're sitting there in the first inning, and uh, Michael looks at me and he says, Dad, I really hope we catch a baseball. And those of you that know me, you know I'm like an eternal optimist. But I looked at him and said, Buddy, catching a baseball in a game is like almost impossible. Like, I've been going to games my whole life. It almost never happens. Don't let tonight rise or fall on whether or not you catch a baseball. And he says, well, I'm going to pray for it. I said, cool, go for it. And, uh, and so we're there, and we're there in the first inning, and we're sitting down the right field line. And the second batter gets up. He's a left-handed hitter. We're in the right field uh, bleachers. And he hits a foul ball. And I look at Mike, and I go, dude, oh, my goodness. This is coming right towards us. And I, I kid you not, about 10 feet away from us was this railing running up the, the center of the walkway. And the ball comes down like a million miles an hour. It hits, not really, but it comes down fast. And it hits the railing and it shoots right at me. And I barehand it like a man. It was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I did though. I just, I barehanded it, you know. And I'm like, yeah. And he's going nuts. Like, and I'm going nuts. And we're looking on the screen, like we're on the screen, the jumbotron of this minor league baseball team. And he's like, we're world famous. And I'm like, I know. And, and we're cheering and we're having so much fun. And uh, he's like, oh, that's great. And so we're sitting there and we're basking in this glorious moment. And the very next pitch, I kid you not, this is not a preacher story. Crack, another foul ball coming. And I, I go, Micah, it's coming right at us. <laughs> and it goes right over our heads and it hits the awning right behind us and it bounces. And I barehand it like a man again. <laughs> And I now have two baseballs. You can cheer for that. It's great. I have two baseballs in my hand. And we are like in this moment of father-son euphoria, just <laughs> cheering. And he looks at me and he says, I'll hold it so you can catch a third one. I'm like, no. Like, this is it. This is all he got. This is it. And I'm literally thinking, I'm like, this is one of the greatest moments 
of my fathering journey. <laughs> but you know what? It gets better than that. It gets better than that. It gets better. That the greatest moments in this journey of life are but a shadow of what awaits you forever. Peter says, remember. Remember his character. He's the God of all grace. Remember your calling, this eternal calling to glory. Number three, he says, I want you to remember, though, the context of the hard stuff that you're experiencing right here and right now. Look back at verse 10. He says, after you've suffered for a little while. Now, this is, this is tough. Peter's just talked about God's nature. Oh, he's so good. And he's talked about his calling on your life, eternal glory. But then he addresses the thing that we all experience, and that is the hard stuff. And he says, I want to give you some context for the suffering that you're in right now. He says, here's the context. He says, as painful as it is, it's just a little while. It's temporary. It's passing. It won't, it won't last forever. And if you don't know Peter, this feels trite. It feels like he's playing too loose with our emotions and our suffering. He's a guy that has suffered a lot and he was suffering when he wrote this. He says, I just wanna give you a perspective though that will help you. He says, the hardest stuff in life, it is passing. The glory of God, it is permanent. So make sure your perspective is anchored in that which is permanent, not that which is passing. He says, make sure you see life for what it actually is. And that is all of the suffering, all of the hard stuff, it's just temporary. And it's so hard to, to believe when you're in the middle of it, right? Like when life is hard, have you ever noticed that when you're in the middle of a hard spot, it feels as though time just crawls. I remember when my mom was battling cancer. It just felt so slow. It felt so laborious. And then on the other side of that journey, I'm like, man, it went by so fast. Think about our friends Brent and Lisa who are part of our church here. You may not know this about their story if you don't know Brent and Lisa Baldwin. Um, they were married for 16 years before they were able to have kids. And a few weeks ago, I was talking to her about that. And she was just talking about just the 16 years of waiting and of praying and of uncertainty and of just the worry and the, the fear. And she said, uh, but here she is on the other side of it with just amazing children now. And she looks back on it. And she says, you know, 16 years really wasn't that long in the grand scheme of eternity. I'm like, wow, who are you? <laughs> this is what Peter's saying. Peter, Peter's saying, hey, the pain is real, but it's temporary. It's temporary. And what's coming is going to so far outweigh that which is bogging you down right now. You know, when I was in high school, I was never very good at chemistry. I don't know if you're good at chemistry, so I may butcher this next illustration. Don't come to me. I'm telling you, I did bad in chemistry. But one of the things that I remember about chemistry is that there's this great mystery of how you could take two elements that on their own were very harmful for you, but when they were combined in the right way, they were beneficial. So you could take something like sodium and something that, like chlorine that if you took them on their, on their own, just as they are, it would kill you. But when they're put together correctly, they become the foundation for table salt, the stuff we put on our food. And I go, isn't that a mystery? Two harmful things, when combined in the right way, actually work towards your pleasure and your benefit. God says, this is what I do. He says, I take all of the hard stuff, the hard moments in life, the things that could crush you, the things that could kill you, the things that should break you, things that if you swallowed them on your own strength would be harmful to you. He says, but in my hand, they become the thing that builds you and strengthen you and encourage you. That God can take the most 
hideous moments of our life and in his hands redeem them in such a way that they become beneficial to those that experience them. It's a mystery, isn't it? Peter says this suffering that you're in, these unthinkable things that you're in, God can use things like this. Here's one of the things that I've experienced in my life is that so often God is so good at redeeming the hard things, if we're not careful, we begin to believe that he was the source of the hard things. God is so good at redeeming the pain and redeeming the suffering, sometimes he gets blamed for it. I love this, just like he says in Genesis 50, he says, hey, what the enemy intended for evil, I'm using for your good. And I'm forming you. And I love this. Peter, he's coming to the end of his life, and he says, he says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember the character of God. He's a God of all grace. I want you to remember his calling on your life. It's eternal glory. I want you to remember the context of your suffering. It's temporary. And number four, he says, I want you to remember his commitment to you in all of this. Look back at verse 10. It's so beautiful. He says that he himself, he himself will restore you. He will make you strong. He will make you firm. He will make you steadfast. Fast. I love that phrase, he himself, or he will do this himself. It almost feels redundant, doesn't it? It's like, hey, an editor should have caught that. And like, just, hey, he will restore you. But Peter wanted us to know that, that your redemption is not something that God outsources to somebody else. That one day, when, when you get through this journey of life, your restoration will be a personal encounter with God himself. And just like God got his hands on Adam and Eve in the garden and formed them, God will get his hands on you and he will reform you. He will recreate you. He will remake you. And every bit of pain and brokenness and hardship and suffering in this life, he will begin to re-engineer. And he's not gonna hand it off to an angel or to a prophet or to a person or to a system that you will stand before the God of glory in he himself. How amazing is that? I remember... Uh, Last year, I was in a different country. I was working with some church leaders, and when we were done doing our work, we were invited to go into uh, the city to eat at this really nice restaurant. And the restaurant, we didn't know this until we got there, but the restaurant was closed. But the guy that we were there working with was good friends with the restaurant owner, and he called him and said, hey, I'm bringing some honored guests. Uh, we want to come eat at your restaurant. So uh, the owner of the restaurant and the chef had shown up. Nobody else was in the restaurant and cooked the meal for us. He said, he came out to the table, he said, I want you to know I prepared this myself for you. Like, I didn't outsource this goodness to my hired hands. Go, have, you, have you thought about what God is gonna do in your life? Just how beautiful that is. Peter says, I want you to remember his character. He's gracious. I want you to remember your calling. It's eternal glory. I want you to remember the context of your suffering. It's temporary. I want you to remember his commitment to you. It is your personal restoration Think about my, my aunt and uncle, Paul and Elisa. They, they bought this house. It's this old historic farmhouse. And they've done this a couple of times where they buy an old house. And they get in and they fix it up themselves and just painstakingly take care of every single detail in the house. And I love watching them do that. They'll, they'll, they'll walk into the house and they'll go, hey, we went and found these old windows. We had to drive three hours to find these windows, but we got them here. And and we found this crown molding. It was from the original time. And here's where we got it here. And I remember in their last house sitting there and he's showing me the doorknobs. And I'm like, Paul, I don't care about the doorknobs. But he's talking to me about the doorknobs and he begins to explain how he had found these original doorknobs. And he had to work on each one of them hand by hand, 48 doorknobs throughout the whole house. And I thought, man, I'm standing here in the finished product and it's more beautiful than the day it was first built. They're going to think that that's the promise, that's the commitment of God towards those who love his son, Jesus. 
says, remember his character. Remember your calling. Remember your context. Remember his commitment to you. And last but not least, remember, remember God's compensation. Remember how God gets rewarded in all of this. I think you hear this, and the question is, okay, if that's what's in it for us, what's in it for God? And I love this. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, to him, to God, be the power or the praise or the glory. To, to him be the power forever and ever and ever and ever. He says, he says, what's in this for God is he says, what's in it for God is eventually God gets what God has always deserved. And that is the eternal adoration and praise of all creation. I've had this conversation with so many people, especially people that are in the middle of hard things, and I've felt this before, so I'm not being hard on you if this is where you're at. But so many times I've had conversations with people that are in the middle of something hard, and they'll say something like this. They'll say, Dave, one day when I see God, he's going to have some explaining to do. He's going to have some questions to answer. Some of you may be feeling that this morning, and I say this with love and tenderness. I'm just telling you, when we stand before the infinite, eternal God of all glory, he will not owe us any explanations. You will owe him some explanations. I will owe him some explanations. It says when we see him that we're not putting him under our judgment seat and running down a list of where were you on that one, God? He says, no, when, when we see him, it says, no, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every heart will rejoice. Like, you'll recognize, literally in that moment when you see God, all of creation will be going, God, you were right, you were right, you were right, you were good, your plan was perfect, we didn't see it, we didn't understand it, you were right. You were right. We'll be standing in the new kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, going, God, you were right. And we didn't understand it then, but we understand it now. And you are good in all power, in all praise, in all glory, in all honor. It's yours forever and ever and ever and ever. I love this. Peter says, I'm coming to my finish line. And he says, as I'm coming to this point, here's the things I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about his graciousness. I'm thinking about his calling on my life, like what awaits me. I'm thinking about the temporary nature of this pain that I'm in. I'm thinking about his promise to restore me. And I'm thinking about the reality that I'm getting ready to give him what has been his all along. It's like Peter's like, hey, you want to join me in that? You want to join me in that? And there's so much beauty in all of this, but it's all hinges on one condition. And I want you to see this. Look back at the beginning of verse 10. He says, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In Christ. Peter says, here's what awaits you. Grace, glory, calling, restoration, redemption. All of that awaits you, he says, but it awaits you in Christ. He says, you don't get all of these good things simply because you're born. He says, you get these things because you've been born again. And I think this is tough, and I'll just say this as gently as I know how to say, because this isn't very popular, but my goal is not to win a popularity contest. My job is to love you. And by the grace and mercy of God, to share the truth of Jesus with you as, as clearly as I know how to share it. Is that the condition for all of this goodness is not simply existing as a human being. The condition to step into this goodness is to lay your life down humbly before Jesus and to say, Jesus, I need you. 
That's it. To need Christ. You know, a few years ago, I was at a funeral for a person who had no interest in God their whole life, no interest whatsoever, died, no interest in God. And I get to the funeral, and it's led by a pastor that doesn't know this person. And they get up, and they begin talking about all of the eternal glory that awaits the, this person that just died. And I just thought, that's kind of the dominant narrative of our day. Live however you want, and then God will just make it okay. But the truth of the scriptures is, no, we, we humble ourselves before Jesus. We say, Jesus, we don't, we don't need you as a cosmic life coach. We don't need you as our divine therapist. We need you as our saving King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you stand in my place at the judgment? And Jesus, he's like, I've got you. <laughs> I've got you. And he says all of this, the grace, the glory, the restoration, he says it all hinges upon your willingness to receive that which Jesus has already died to freely give you. And I would, I would be remiss if we got to the end of this 16-week journey in Peter, and I didn't just ask you a simple question, and that is, are you in Christ? I'm not asking you if you grew up in church. I'm not asking you if you show up here every week. I'm not asking you if you try to do good things. I'm asking you, are you in Christ? And if you have questions about that or worries about that or fears about that, come talk to me. I, I'd love to, I'll be over at the Respond Banner. There'll be some men and women. We'd love to pray with you. And sit down and talk about what that looks like. He says, but this is what awaits you in Christ. But in here, there are a lot of you in the room that are, that are in Christ. And you know you're in Christ. And you're going, okay, what do we do with this? Do we just sit around and remember it? And here's what I believe. I believe Peter knew that when you take these truths into the bedrock of your heart, it fundamentally shifts the way that you live right here and right now. I love what C.S. Lewis once said. I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's somewhere along the lines of this. And he said, the people that live the best lives now are the ones that think of the next life most often. It's a profound truth. He says, the people that think the most of what awaits them in the glory of God are the ones that live with boldness and with joy and with passion here in ways that nobody else does. I don't know if you like the Olympics, but in 2010, the Winter Olympics, um, my favorite event is the men's halfpipe, snowboarding halfpipe uh, competition. And Sean White, he's like dominated for the last decade or so. And I remember that event in particular because the way that the men's halfpipe works is each of the competitors, they get two runs down the halfpipe, and it doesn't matter if you fall on one of your runs, they take your best run with the highest score, and that's what you're graded on. And so you just have to get one really good run in. That's kind of the way that it works. And so Sean had qualified in first place, so he got to go very last. He could see what all of his competitors would do. And at the end of the first run, he had, uh, he had the highest score, so he's sitting in the gold medal position. And so for the next 12 competitors, he just watches as one person after another goes and tries to beat his score. And so he's up at the top of the half pipe, and there's one more guy to go, and the guy goes and he throws down an amazing run, but his score falls just short of Sean White's first run. And so they look at Sean and they say, hey, you've just won the gold. It doesn't matter what you do on this run. You've just won the gold. You can crawl down. You can take your snowboard off. You can walk home. You can roll down the half pipe. Anything you do, you win the gold medal. And I love it because in that moment, this huge grin comes across his face and he drops it on the half pipe. You need to go back and watch it on YouTube. And he lands a trick that no human being had ever landed in a competition ever up until that point. And it's just one of these brilliant moments because I thought, what happens when somebody knows, like in their heart, that they can't lose? They win bigger. <laughs> they play harder. 
They try more boldly. And I go, well, man, what happens in the heart of a Christian when we really remember, when we really believe that he's a God of grace with an eternal calling on our life that's working in our suffering that will restore all things so that one day we'll be with him forever. What happens in a church like that? A church starts to look like a church. We start to live like no one lives, love like no one loves, serve like no one serves, give like no one gives, die as no one dies, rejoice as no one rejoices. We begin to live with the hot sauce of life. And people look at us and they go, what's in them? And we go, man, we know. We know how the story ends. And I go, I know a lot of us know that. But I'm asking you, do you know that? Because, man, when you know that, everything begins to change. It says, may the God of all grace who called you to the eternal glory in Christ Jesus after you suffered a little while with him, may he restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever and ever. Amen. And Peter ends the letter and he says, now it's our turn. Let's stand. I want to pray over us. As we prepare for communion, as we prepare for worship, man, if you want to receive Christ, if you have questions, I'll be at the respond band, and there'll be some men and women to talk with you. If you need prayers for anything, we'd love to pray with you. And we're going to take communion together as this reminder that everything Jesus has done is true and good and real for you. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I love these people. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in your presence with your word and your people, God. May you remind us in the core of our hearts the truthfulness of what Peter proclaims. Help us, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for the reality of what awaits us. Would you help us to humble ourselves in Christ and to receive the free gift? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.